Kia ora, I'm Emil Donovan, and today on The Detail... The rise in extremes has led to some irreversible impacts as nature and humans are pushed beyond their ability to adapt. More than 45,000 people, including world leaders and our own climate change minister, are to descend on Sham al-Sheikh in Egypt for COP27, the Conference of Parties, the 27th one. We're seeing a really dramatic increase in renewables, so that's good. But in terms of government's commitments to reducing emissions, they're climbing rather than going down. The world's biggest and most important climate summit has just wrapped up in the Egyptian city of Sharm el-Sheikh. With the residual effects of a pandemic and the lingering spectre of a military invasion. Sir, are you going to pay for the damage that you've done to that country? You are absolutely war criminals. These are war criminals. Russia is war. They are war criminals. So today on the podcast, my conversation with Newsroom's Rod Oram from late last week as the conference was drawing to a close about the big themes of COP27, the reasons for hope, and the part Aotearoa can play in the Herculean task that lies ahead. Remind us about COP, this annual meeting. What, what, what is this? About 30 years ago, the United Nations finally uh, decided to take a structured approach to climate issues. So that became the United Nations Framework um, Convention on Climate, UNFCCC. Lots of countries, pretty much I think every country in the world signed up to that. So each of those countries is a party to that convention. So COP is the annual conference of the parties. Um, and so it's all the countries of the world that had signed up for the UN climate framework. And um, this amounts to pretty much roundly 200 countries. And that's what the meeting is. What's the point of it? What is supposed to come out of COP in theory, in an ideal world? Um, the role of COP is to progress that UN climate agenda every year. There is uh, work to f- has been carrying on since Glasgow last year, various working parties to um, flesh out and to start to implement decisions made not just last year, but in past years. So there's that large work stream. But then also, crucially, there's the opportunity for the parties to put new items on the agenda Mm. in the hope that COP will then take those up and progress those. So COP each year is about progressing that work, um, is about getting more decisions. Now, crucially, each of those decisions has to be unanimous. That's the enormous challenge of COP and the enormous burden on the country that is president of COP and host of COP. So that's Egypt this year as the host, as the president, as the chair of the meeting, if you like. 40,000 delegates in a country with a reported 60,000 political prisoners and a climate summit at the Lamborghini Conference Centre. Egypt's repressive state then, an unlikely place, human rights groups say, for humanity to save itself from itself. So this tremendous burden and this extraordinary challenge of diplomacy to try to reach agreement on these various issues. There are many COPs which are 
very weak um, in recent years. For example, Madrid was a few years ago. After more than two weeks, negotiators have failed to deliver a firm agreement on how to handle carbon markets where big emitters can buy the right to pollute from countries that emit less than their fair share. Delegates from nearly 200 countries passed declarations calling for ambitious climate protection targets. But a decision on rules for regulating carbon emissions is now postponed to next year. Um, in past years, there have been total disasters, which was Copenhagen back in 2009, as memory serves. It started with several hours of fantastically pompous speeches by world leaders pretending to be green and pretending to be concerned about the environment. It was just one after the other, um, maybe 40, 50 speeches. Whatever they cut together is going to be um, a very pale version of what was possible. Right now, to be honest, uh, it looks very pessimistic and it looks like a real betrayal. It can't even be called a deal. Um, it could be called a cop-out. Over to the people. It's the only answer, you know. If we leave it in the hands of these people, the politicians then, you know, it's runaway climate change for us. And um, it was a complete disaster because all the carefully orchestrated negotiations which were going to lead up to a new climate framework completely fell apart. Mm -hmm. But then there are COPs which are great triumphs, as uh, Paris, COP21 was, in 2015, mm -hmm. whereby a whole new concept for how countries could work together. And so Paris was an amazing breakthrough. Um, because there was a big agreement on that structure and a lot of countries put their own nationally determined contributions on the table. The Paris Agreement is a legally binding international treaty on climate change to limit global warming to well below 2, preferably to 1.5 degrees Celsius compared to pre-industrial levels. But Paris was fundamentally important because it marked a big shift in COP away from the traditional, very legalistic global treaties, climate protocols, uh, of which the Kyoto Protocol was the predecessor to the Paris Agreement. And that was a very legalistic global treaty, very top-down and very imperfect, um, both in its architecture, but also hugely dysfunctional in that it failed to resolve the conflict between developing nations and developed nations. Developed nations said, yes, we have to reduce our emissions because of the climate, we need to find a way to do that. Developing nations were saying, hang on a second, we're very early stage in our development. We deserve the opportunity to emit a great deal more to catch up with you developed countries who have been busy emitting for years in pursuit of your economic development. The Kyoto Protocol required industrialized countries to cut their GHG emissions a little, but developing countries, including China and India, weren't required to curb emissions at all. And the U.S. didn't ratify the treaty, so that didn't really work. But that's why the Paris Agreement was so important, because it was this voluntary, non-binding agreement. And that sounds counterintuitive. How effective could that be? Well, it's very effective, um, if it creates some kind of transparency, as it does, of the climate commitments that countries make, which are on the table, you can analyze them, you can see what countries are doing. And therefore, there is a big dynamic about naming and shaming countries that are failing to live up to their agreements or failing to deliver on even worthwhile commitments. But also, of course, that uh, voluntary nature 
and non-binding nature generates plaudits for those countries that are doing well. So that's why Paris was a fundamental shift in the whole nature of structure and outcomes. Having said that, the UNFCCC negotiating process is by its nature incredibly detailed because um, these commitments require to be operationalized and implementing them takes an enormous amount of detail and further negotiation. But also by the nature of the UN process and that those decisions then have to be unanimous, that's why the negotiations are so painfully slow and, and so painfully fraught. And so it remains an amazing challenge for the nations of the world to try to find new ways of doing this process, which means that they can reach speedier decisions. Rod, you, you mentioned earlier on in that answer that um, some iterations of COP are considered to be catastrophes and some as triumphs. How do you think COP27 will be renewed or perceived a year or five years or 10 years from now? Um, impossible to tell quite what its legacy will be, but it's even more impossible right now to work out what the outcome is going to be. So we're in that moment late in the second and final week of COP where everything seems in play. Very little seems to be agreed. There um, is, you know, fierce arguments and agendas being pursued all over the place. But part of the magic of COP, if you like, is that um, in these final few days, the pressure for countries to make some progress, some decisions, gets very intense. And that's where the breakthroughs happen. The scene is set for fraught negotiations as the COP27 climate conference in Egypt over who should pay for climate damage. Now, technically, COP is supposed to finish, I think, about five or six o'clock Friday evening. Ain't no way that's going to happen. Every COP runs on. Um, but with the clock ticking in overtime, that's when the real action happens. And uh, last year in Glasgow, um, it ran on for a full 24 hours. Mm. It's very crucial what happens in these next few days. It's very crucial what role Egypt plays as president. And I'd have to say the verdict on Egypt so far is that they've been significantly too passive um, in how they've been handling COP. They haven't been driving the agenda hard enough. They haven't been banging heads together um, sufficiently. They haven't been exercising very strong diplomacy. Things do get pretty hairy in the late second week, but um, this is uh, probably worse than I've seen before. Now, that could change a bit, but that's why it's too early to make a judgment about what the potential outcome might be. It won't be of the Paris proportions because there isn't something that huge on the table. But there could still be a number of very good decisions. And then we'll have to look back in about five years' time as to how did those positions that were decided, how did they then flow through in changing the debate and catalyzing some other things um, that then had an impact? So I, I think the, the history's verdict on COP27 will have to wait. Is it possible, Rod, to elegantly summarise what the main points on the agenda this year were, either using specific examples or, or broad themes that kept sort of cropping up? How would you answer that irritatingly nebulous question? 
In terms of this year's agenda, the absolutely most crucial issue is finance for loss and damage. Earlier this week, New Zealand joined just a handful of other countries in giving money to developing countries for the loss and damage wrought by climate change. Climate Change Minister James Shaw and Foreign Affairs Minister Nanaya Mahuta announced $20 million will be ring-fenced from a climate fund filed from revenue gathered from the emissions trading scheme. So this is finance for developing countries to help them cope with the damage caused by climate events, climate catastrophes now, but also the economic losses involved in that process too. Mm. This is an, an historic COP in one respect, because that issue is now finally on the agenda officially for the first time. Now, Paris, at the last moment, threw in this idea of $100 US billion dollars of such aid from developed to developing countries as a little sop to get the developing countries over the line on COP. But developed countries have never delivered on that. The $100 billion a year promised 13 years back by rich, polluting nations is still broken. If $100 billion seems a lot, consider this. Government spent $16 trillion on COVID. The biggest five oil and gas companies have made $168 billion profit this year alone. The current tally is up to about $87 billion a year. So this is a really significant COP mm. because in the few days before COP started, there was already discussions uh, had been on running, but there were particular discussions here about agenda items. It took 40 hours of negotiations for developing countries led by the group of 77 developing countries plus China to get finance for loss and damage officially on the agenda of a COP for the first time. So that is the issue that is the absolute litmus test. The goal is still modest. What's being talked about is agreement on some kind of new structure, an outline of it, to be agreed at this COP. Further negotiations over the next year would flesh that out to be agreed at COP28 next year in Dubai, which could then start operationalizing that process and that money would flow by the following COP. So you can imagine the anxiety and anger amongst developing countries that even if we get this far at this COP, that six still means that it's going to be quite a few more years before we see structured flows of money rather than ad hoc payments. So that is absolutely the most important item on the agenda, not just because developing countries deserve and need that money urgently, but because it will help them on their own climate adaptation and transitions. And that's why this COP is really significant, because this is a COP which is very much focused on Africa, because Africa is the continent where the greatest growth in population and economy and emissions is going to be coming in coming decades. Nigeria has the largest population in Africa and it keeps growing at 3.2% a year. At that rate, by 2050, there will be an estimated 402 million people in Nigeria, according to the US Census Bureau. And so it's really important for the developing countries of the world to come around Africa and to give them support to leapfrog the last vestiges of fossil fuel driven economies and so that all their growth is as clean as possible.
Petroleum contributes more than half of Nigeria's budget and more than 90% of its foreign exchange earnings. Experts say ditching it could devastate the economy. So there are really important discussions here about how to quite significantly change the architecture of international finance um, to get much better flows of money to all countries, um, but particularly developing countries. You know, when we talk about money, that, that is what that money is sort of geared towards, right? Like it's, it's investing to make an economy more sustainable. Because, you know, when, you talk about, when we talk about billions of dollars, sometimes I feel like the intent of that money can kind of get lost. That is the point of the money, correct? Absolutely. I think it helps to step back and just follow through a, a very essential logic here. Humanity has been ramping up its greenhouse gas emissions, particularly for the last couple of hundred years with the advent of the Industrial Revolution. Those 200 years in Earth time is the equivalent of a nuclear explosion, right? In terms of um, how much greenhouse gases we've suddenly injected into the atmosphere. The Earth responded quite slowly in our terms. So we thought we could see we were pumping lots of emissions up into the atmosphere, um, but the climate wasn't changing much. But in fact, in Earth time, Earth systems were changing blindingly fast. And that's what we're now seeing is this very rapid, we're now seeing in human terms, this very rapid change in climate systems. We also know if we are to keep our rising temperature to one and a half degrees, which is obviously an arbitrary line, but it's the best guide that climate scientists can give us as to a, a level at which we can probably cope with further climate change, but beyond which climate change will uh, accelerate even faster. So we've got that one and a half degree benchmark. And we also know from climate science how many much more emissions we can put up there to keep within 1.5. It's a very small amount. In other words, we have to start dramatically reducing emissions mm. by roughly 50% by 2030. Now let's just take that to New Zealand as just one example of developed country. We are really struggling to reduce emissions at all. We are really struggling to put in place policies and plans and incentives to do that. So if we are finding it so hard to change our existing economy, just imagine how hard it is for developing countries that on one hand have this huge pressure from growing population and very inadequate standards of economy and life anyway. So that's the unbelievably Herculean task that humanity has. And quite frankly, I don't think most people get that. Mm. I spend all my lots of time as a business journalist with very good companies who have one and a half degree science-based targets. And, and so they theoretically know what that pathway is for them. But they still make decisions based on their investment cycle or what their investors will let them, shareholders will let them do. So we're still not letting ourselves, we're still not allowing ourselves to actually be listening to the planet, listening to the living systems of the earth, which are telling us how urgent all this is, and thus responding accordingly. And 
that for me is the huge gap, this huge cognitive dissonance of humanity um, that the earth is telling us loud and clear through its physics and its chemistry and its biology, what the hell's happening and what we need to do. And we just aren't listening. We just aren't acting. Hmm. The thought occurs to me here. At one level, it's a terribly obvious thought. And I'm embarrassed I hadn't come up with it before. But I think one way through this for us as individuals, as, as a country, is that if in Aotearoa we can really actually get serious about climate, about mitigation, about adaptation, knowing how intense the climate pressures are on us, but knowing what the great benefits are for us to respond, both climate-wise, environmentally, ecosystem-wise, economically, socially, culturally, we know that if we do well on this, we derive all those benefits. Mm. If we really jump into this and really fast forward what we're doing, we will gain confidence and experience. We will also gain a more dynamic economy. So therefore, we will have more to contribute back out to the world. We will have more money to be able to give to the Pacific. We will have more skills to help transfer. We will be more compelling and effective as an international partner in negotiations, in commercial and economic alliances on this. I guess I'll be returning to Aotearoa next week ever more intensely focused on how we can really get serious about our climate transformation. Because then the better we are, the better we'll be able to help our neighbours. And this has to be a collective response for all of humanity. Because if we don't bring the best part of the 8 billion of us along on this journey, that's where it all starts to fall apart. Because you will get developing countries that are absolute disasters. And therefore, the collapse of their ecosystems and thus their societies and their economies only adds even greater pressure on the planet. That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The Detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Sarah Robson. Bonnie Harrison is our associate producer. And thanks to Rod Oram. Matewa.